0: Hello and welcome to the world of emotions and the Emotion Focus podcast, a series all about emotions, how they work for us, how sometimes they don't work for us, it seems, and how we might understand that better and be able to do something about it. I'm Lou Cooper. I'm your host. I'm based in Nam, Melbourne, Australia. And I'm joined in this series by people from around the globe who've dedicated most of their professional lives to the exploration of emotions. Everything you hear on this podcast is informed by emotion theory and emotion focused therapy. In this series we've talked about many different emotional experiences and how sometimes they're not as straightforward as they may seem at first sight. But when it comes to the experience of grief, it does seem More straightforward, perhaps, sadness at the loss of a loved one or sadness at the loss of anything. It seems quite easy to understand that. But I think we all recognize that there is an awful lot more to the grief process than just that sadness. And there are many different theories about the process of grief and what it should look like. And also, you know, why does it last longer for some people than it does for others? Jason Chabane is a lecturer in psychology at Curtin University in Western Australia and the trainer at the Western Australian Institute of Emotion-Focused Therapy, and recently the co-author of an article that was published in the Journal of Person-Centered and Experiential Psychotherapies called Emotion-Focused Therapy for Grief and Bereavement. So it's great to be able to speak to you about this, Jason. Hello.
1: Hi, Lou. Great to be here.
0: This is the Emotion Focused Podcast, so our focus is on the emotions that are involved in grief. And as I said, there there have been many different theories about this process. I'm wondering if you can say something before we move on to the emotion-focused approach to it about the other theories that, that exist.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of theories that have been made, and most of them take the form of sort of different stages that people kind of go through in a sort of sequence. Um, Depending on the theory, they're broken down into different amounts of chunks. Um, But usually there's a kind of early stage of kind of facing the reality of the grief or kind of really reckoning with the loss that there is. And then various other stages moving towards kind of people pulling themselves back up and moving on with their life. Um, And it was interesting, one theory in particular that is coming to mind as I say this really emphasized that there's something adaptive kind of between moving between those two states of sort of feeling the pain of all that you've lost um, in one hand and then kind of being able to put it aside for a while and be able to orientate back towards the rest of your life in sort of an oscillating um, kind of fashion. But usually people are talking about stages or sequences of grief.
0: As you talk about that oscillation, that kind of moving in and out of grief, I think it's it's very common, isn't it, that people might have an initial response to their loss and then they're fine for a while and then, you know, even years later, suddenly there it is back again. That's, that's quite usual.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the experience of grief is so complicated and involves so much, uh, I guess, of our self and our different aspects of our life that it's kind of prototypical for things to kind of come back at different times where there are different cues in your environment. And all of that is, you know, sort of fairly normal in dealing with the grief process.
0: So in in your article, Jay, you differentiate between two different types of grief, a normal grief process and a complicated grief process. I'm wondering if you can explain what that means or what the difference is.
1: Yeah. So when we said normal, we meant kind of like non-complicated grief process, where it's kind of like when people are able to access their own emotions and kind of process them in a Relatively straightforward way, which still would involve a fair degree of complexity. So that still means that people are kind of going through experiences of, first of all, really feeling the pain of what they've lost, feeling an immense amount of kind of wounding and reckoning of the the hole that is left when another's there. Then going through other experiences of, um, sometimes feeling compassion for the for themselves as well as letting go, making sense of it, memories of kind of joys of the past. All those different experiences are sort of um, part of a normal grief process, which is in itself quite complicated. We're really differentiating that from what we called complicated grief, where we meant that some other kind of emotional process is blocking that grieving from going on. And that blocking could take a lot of different forms, right? So sometimes, for example, you might have someone that has lingering resentments to a significant other. It's kind of like, you know, if you lost a parent and the parent was somehow either abusive or neglectful, then suddenly the grieving experience is much more complicated. You could have partly a sense of loss, of the good parts that weren't there, but also these kind of lingering resentments. And if you feel that the resentments aren't acknowledged, it can be hard to kind of face the grief as well of the loss either of what wasn't there, or sometimes it's kind of the loss of what could have been and still wasn't, like a loss of the loving parent that you didn't actually have.
0: So, I mean, you're calling it complicated. It, it it sounds very complicated to have those two things. Are they happening at the same time or do you, again, oscillate between those two experiences? Um,
1: Often it would be more like one of them shuts down the other, right? Uh-huh. In, so it's kind of like if someone was stuck in their resentment and it's kind of like I hold on to the anger that I felt for the other being neglectful. And so you had a parent that never really acknowledged you. You could be seething in resentment, kind of hold on to that. And holding on to that could feel really important You know, in terms of feeling like that's your way of getting validation for the hurt of what you didn't get. But by holding on to it also prevents you from going into the more sad state of feeling the emptiness that is left from the loss. And you kind of can't be in two states simultaneously, right? You can't be angry and sad. So usually one of those would take priority.
0: So you'd have to, I I mean, you'd have to go with the anger first, yes? That's the one that's getting in the way.
1: Yeah, that's the one that would be getting in the way. So somehow needing to find a way to deal with that so that it's kind of um, no longer shutting down the rest of your emotional reactions.
0: What other ways do we get blocked or what are what other parts of grief can be complicated?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, people can block their grief in um, quite a lot of ways. One of the, I guess, most straightforward or most common ones probably is just fear of the pain. And often people say things like, you know, if I open that lid, I might just be overwhelmed or I'll never be able to kind of pull myself together again. And that really is kind of a, se- a fear of the emotion or a fear of how much it would hurt to really recognize or feel the extent of the loss that they're faced with.
0: It, it's important for people to to reach that point of sadness, to grieve, isn't it? If, I mean, if, if you don't reach that point, which I imagine is quite a common thing, that the resentment just lingers and stays there and the grief never really happens.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's quite a lot of research that has shown that, right? That people that don't actually grieve have worse outcomes in just so many ways in their life in terms of not really functioning properly. And I guess partly it's kind of like if you have shut down part of your emotional experience, then You don't go through the process of really feeling what you've lost and then being able to rebuild. And in order to rebuild, you kind of have to have dealt with the wound. So you can get stuck in kind of a lingering sort of detachment sometimes if you're not able to um, properly grieve.
0: And I, I noticed when you were talking about the normal grief, what you call the normal grief process, you made mention of nostalgic joy.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting um, interesting observation that we kind of came across from clinical experience. It was highlighted by my um, co-author, like Les Greenberg. Really this observation that when people go through and really begin to feel the pain of their grief, they're beginning to kind of recognize what they no longer have and the nuances of that are tied to really their memories of the past and the memories of, you know, the good things that they've lost. So it's kind of like as I remember the joy of being close to a, if I'd lost a spouse, for example, then I'd be remembering all the idiosyncrasies, the ways that it was so good to be together. And in that way, the Pain of what is lost also holds the memories of what was really good. So people often find themselves sort of going through the state of really feeling quite wounded, but then re-experiencing this kind of nostalgia for um, the memories of how good it was um, in the times that they had. So it is a um, sort of like a bittersweet recollection. Of the past and how and what that person had brought to their life.
0: Often hear people talking, um, people who are grieving talking about some form of guilt about things that couldn't be repaired or something that didn't happen. Is that is that kind of the same thing? Is that also getting in the way?
1: Sometimes it could be getting in a way. So those. Blocks. The different kinds of blocks can be quite diverse, but guilt certainly is one of them. Um, If people are kind of holding themselves responsible for what they haven't done, then that can also prevent them from kind of moving on. And there can be other versions of it as well. Another common one is kind of what we call meaning protest, but a sense of real unfairness of like it shouldn't be this way. Is another way that people block themselves. If you had, for example, a parent that lost a child, it'd be kind of common to say, you know, it shouldn't be this way. Parents shouldn't outlive their children, and a real sense of kind of existential unfairness about that, and that sense of it shouldn't be this way can also kind of lead people to sort of fighting their grief um, in a way through the unfairness. and. Um, that can also kind of function as a block.
0: How can people work with that? I mean, I can feel the pain of that as you say it, you know, the loss of a child, something that is not supposed to happen. It's not supposed to happen that way.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, in some ways, the way of dealing with it is sort of by accepting it and feeling it. So it really requires an internal reckoning of what has happened. And in some ways, that is, you know, you said it feels so profoundly painful to even hear that, and it it would feel that way to a person as well. I guess partly through feeling it, there is the acceptance, right, internally, that that loss has happened, as kind of terrible as it is. And then people are also able to through feeling the terribleness, find ways of pulling themselves together. And that happens partly from compassion for the self, you know. And as people do grieve or begin to allow the grief, it's kind of common to see them kind of rubbing themselves or soothing themselves. And that's a way of kind of expressing compassion for themselves for what they've lost. And also, the grief signals that need to other people as well. When you see someone in their pain, it pulls in the other people around them, the compassion of wanting to console them, which is why you get people kind of huddling together at a funeral, kind of arms around each other, because mm. they are pulled really to give that sense of support, compassion, and consolation to the other, and that is a real important part of of meaning that the grief isn't happening alone, and Feeling that social support from others does allow partly the self to rebuild. And then people also need to kind of eventually find ways of making sense of the loss because there can be, you know, real um, breaks, not only in the connection with the other, but in people's identity. You know, people can go, I had so much of my life as a sense of being a mother or a father or a child or a brother. And those roles kind of can be quite key to people's identity. So you need to kind of make meaning around that, that I am no longer that person in that role. I am now kind of a person that was that to someone else, right? Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: then eventually, you know, if there's been a real kind of confrontation or acceptance of what's been lost then people can also find ways to kind of carry forward the good bits that they had with the others which you know sometimes people would for example still have a sense of communing with the other people often talk about I still talk to them or I still have a sense that they're there to me people sometimes you know signify things in going to a graveyard for example and sort of speaking to the tombstone and that's a way of in some ways still maintaining the connection carrying forward in themselves the sense of what they had got from the other person or the sense of um of relationship that they that they no longer have.
0: Jay as you as you're talking about these many different aspects of grief I'm wondering whether grief actually ever finishes for anyone.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's an interesting question, right? And Like, does it ever finish? And I think in some ways it's not a discrete experience, right? It's not like one day I grieved and then the next day it was done. But I think there is a way in which it kind of does transform into a different format. And a sort of metaphor would be like a physical wound. You know, if you got cut suddenly on your arm, then initially there would be a gaping hole and gushing blood and a real acute kind of stinging pain. But as it healed, if it was able to heal well, you would begin to transform into something else, right? Which is not a sense that necessarily there's no sign the wound ever happened, but maybe into something that's like a healed scar where people aren't kind of acutely feeling the ripped apartness of the grief, but it is a sense of the the past still being carried forward in some way.
0: And that scar, I know from my own experience, can sometimes be scratched. My father died about 20 years ago and... Very recently this year, I was just driving along in the car and suddenly, for some reason, I have no idea what it was, but I felt this wave of sadness and and tears in relation to my father. W- was that still the continuation of a process of grief or was it? I, I don't know what that was. I, I explained it to myself as that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? And as you were saying that, I had a little bit of resonance as well of kind of my own experience, similarly. And I guess you're kind of highlighting the sense that it is an ongoing process, right? And partly, there's a a naturalness, I think, to having some degree of ongoing sense of loss at different points. You know, in your example, you're kind of highlighting that it's, it's coming in a Confusing way where maybe there's no obvious sign of um, why it's being brought up. But you could imagine other experiences where people would have an obvious reason why it's come up. If it's kind of like, you know, a dad passed and then there was a milestone like the birth of a child or a wedding or something that they were no longer there at, then I would imagine in those situations that would really pull again for a sense of. Re grieving because it's here's another thing that they weren't able to be there for, or weren't able to be a part of. So, in that way, it's kind of like an, uh, it can be quite a natural continuation of ongoing markers of loss, which continue to have that sense of sadness about them. I think the time that it gets more problematic is when the grief is kind of shut off in an ongoing way. And instead of moving through different experiences of partly facing it, partly putting it down and moving on, if it's just permanently shut off, that's when it kind of manifests in more ongoing problematic experiences.
0: And probably very difficult for people to realize when that is happening.
1: Absolutely. Because, you know, it wouldn't look like grief, right? It can look more like detachment or it could look more like someone is just okay. Um, If you get people that are really used to shutting off their emotions, getting on into kind of a coping mode, then they will look like they are just coping. The times that you see the cracks might be few and far between.
0: Jason, it's quite fascinating. I've found what you've said quite fascinating, and I I hope also that it might be a comfort to some people to hear this talked about um, mm-hmm. in this way. So thank you very much for your time and for speaking to me.
1: Great. Thanks for having me, Lou. It was great to talk to you.
0: Jason Shabane, who is a lecturer in psychology at Curtin University and a trainer at, the trainer, I should say, at the Western Australian Institute of Emotion-Focused Therapy. And he's talking about some research on emotion-focused therapy for grief and bereavement that was published recently in the Journal of Persons and Experiential Psychotherapies. And if you'd like to find out more about Jason's research or more about this episode or other episodes in this series, or if you would like to make a comment or share whatever else you might want to do with this podcast, please go to our website inmotionfocused.com.